December 6, 2015. I'm Carolyn Baker, and this is the first Lifeboat Hour of the last month of this year, and what a year it's been. It's very difficult to wrap our minds around the events of this year without falling into despair, and from time to time, all of us do. In fact, sometimes despair can be helpful, but it's not a fun place to live. It's depleting and depressing, and yet, We have to look at what is so, whether we want to or not. In fact, that is why this show was created by my friend, the late Mike Rupert, a show that offers lifeboats for sailing through the very troubled waters of our time and little lighthouses along the way to help us see where we're going. That's why I invite guests, such as the person who's with us today, to share their perspective and their wisdom to inspire, guide, and sometimes challenge us to expand our perspective which is almost always too small. Before I introduce you to today's amazing guest, I want to remind you of the online symposium that I and my team have created, which will begin airing Tuesday, January 19, 2016, entitled Living with Passion and Purpose in the Face of Humanity's Greatest Threat. This symposium will include 10 heart-opening sessions and feature people such as Andrew Harvey, Derek Jensen, climate writer Dar Jamal, Stephen Jenkinson, eco-psychologist Linda Bazell, Jenea Donaldson, producer of Peak Moment TV, Becca Martinson, Dr. Mick Collins, author and psychologist from the UK, and myself as moderator along with Dean Walker and Peter Melton. This symposium is a phenomenal opportunity not only to hear these presenters, but to interact with them and ask them questions and, of course, receive the recordings for all of the sessions if you can't be present or if you just want to have them for later use. And here's the really good news. If you register for the symposium before December 15, the entire cost for this groundbreaking event is $75. After December 15, the price increases to 95 so please go to my website at carolynbaker.net and register for this symposium. We want your questions, your comments, and your wisdom in this symposium, and we urge you to spread the word far and wide. I look forward to seeing you online January 19th. In the spring of this year, a friend suggested I attend a workshop here in Boulder, Colorado, offered by a woman named Mirabai Starr. Since the workshop was being held in a church, uh, I was a bit reluctant because, as one of my radical nun friends says, I don't do church. In any event, I went to the workshop and encountered not only a very wise woman speaking about a concept new to me called interspirituality, but also a woman who really understands the global crisis. I gave her a copy of my last two books, and to my amazement during the second half of the workshop, she began reading from my books. Now, believe me, I had never experienced this before. And when she said something like, when you're in a meltdown, your job is to melt down, I knew that she got it on some deeper level. 
She also called herself spiritually promiscuous, which is a new phrase that I've adopted to describe my own path. Mirabai Starr is the author of a riveting memoir, Caravan of No Despair, a memoir of loss and transformation. I just finished reading it, and i got to tell you, it's a heart-opening page-turner. But Mirabai is also a translator of two well-known mystics whose voices I believe are absolutely critical for these times. Those are St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. In her critically acclaimed new translations of the mystics and reflections on the unifying teachings at the heart of all spiritual paths, Mirabai uses fresh lyrical language to make timeless wisdom accessible to a contemporary circle of seekers. Daughter of the counterculture, Mirabai was born in New York in 1961 to secular Jewish parents who rejected the patriarchy of institutionalized religion, and uh, they were also intellectual artists and advocates of social justice and environmental responsibility. They were also active in the anti-war protests of the 1960s and 70s of the Vietnam era. Now, in 1972, Mirabai's mom and dad and her younger brother and sister uprooted from their suburban life and embarked on an extended road trip that led them through the jungles of Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula, where they lived for many months on isolated Caribbean beaches and ended in the mountains of Taos, New Mexico. There, the family embraced an an alternative back-to-the-land lifestyle, uh, living in a communal effort to live simply and sustainably values that still remain important to Mirabai today. As a teenager, Mirabai lived at the Lama Foundation, an intentional spiritual community near Taos, New Mexico, that has honored all of the world's faith traditions since its inception in 1967. This ecumenical experience became formative in the universal quality that has infused Mirabai's work ever since. She was an adjunct professor of philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico, Taos, for 20 years. Her emphasis has always been on making connections between the perennial teachings found at the heart of all the world's spiritual paths in an effort to promote peace and justice. Mirabai speaks and teaches nationally and internationally on the teachings of the mystics and contemplative practice and a topic very connected with my own work, the transformational power of grief and loss. She lives in the mountains of northern New Mexico near Taos with her husband Jeff, and between them, Mirabai and Jeff have four grown daughters and six grandchildren. Mirabai's youngest daughter, Jenny, was killed in a car accident in 2001 at the age of 14. On that same day, Mirabai's first book, A Translation of Dark Night of the Soul, was released. She considers this experience and the connection between profound loss and longing for the sacred, the ground of her own spiritual path. Mirabai Starr, welcome to the Lifeboat Hour. Thank you, Carolyn. Gosh, I just learned all kinds of things about myself in that very... (laughs) Well, it's all on your website, Mirabai. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) You ought to read it sometime. (laughs) I should. Why? Well, it's uh, wonderful to be with you. Finally, you know, after connecting with you, I knew that, that a conversation was um, looming in our future together. So I'm just thrilled to be able to to be with you on this very beautiful show that you offer the world. 
Thank you. And I'm so glad you're here. And, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you today because your synthesis of the global crisis and, and the longing in each of us for, as the title of my symposium puts it, living with passion and purpose in the face of humanity's greatest challenge is amazingly astute and incisive. And, you know, we hear people incessantly refer to the dark night of the soul, and yet what they actually mean is often quite different from what the author of that book, John of the Cross, probably had in mind. From your research and translation of John's words, what do you think he actually meant by that term? Well, John of the Cross was really speaking about a spiritual crisis, a very personal, even private experience that happens often to mature practitioners of any spiritual path. You know, when you're, you're kind of rolling along in your spiritual life for a number of years generally, and you've cultivated probably some discipline, maybe in contemplative practice and meditation practice, or other um, practices and, and readings of scriptures and studying the essence of, of the tradition that you're connected to, Maybe you're a, a yoga practitioner or even a yoga teacher. It's really, it applies to a person of any lineage, uh, not just the, the Christian tradition, which is where St. John of the Cross was coming from. But it's this phenomenon where when, after you have been deeply engaged in, in spiritual life, there seems to come a time, and this seems to be a kind of universal station of the spiritual life, when everything kind of dries up, and we're no longer feeling that, that juicy sense of connectedness to the sacred. So at first it manifests, the dark night of the soul, as a, as a sensory experience where you don't get that spiritual high, what I call the, the goodies, um, along the way from, from the practices that used to reliably make you feel really connected. And then if a dark night of the soul progresses, John of the Cross says, not only do our sensory attachments fall away because they're no longer being fed, but our conceptual attachments collapse. That is, the way we've kind of figured out the spiritual life, ultimate reality, the, you know, the doctrines and the dogmas that had sustained us just no longer make any sense. And for people who are deeply devoted to a particular spiritual path, this is, is kind of terrifying because everything that they built their faith on is, is falling apart and they feel usually, we often feel like we're doing something terribly wrong and that we, that we somehow have failed God or that God has given up on us. Um, we don't even really believe necessarily in any kind of personified being that might be called God anymore. And if we're deeply rooted in a particular faith tradition, this is um, kind of embarrassing. It feels like a problem that needs to be solved. It feels like something broken that needs to be fixed. And John of the Cross, who was a great Christian mystic and who by virtue of his mysticism, really transcended all religiosity, as all mystics, I believe, do, had some pretty radical advice for, for when a dark night of the soul descends. He says, stop trying to make it right. Stop trying to pray your way through this crisis 
and to uh, fill the emptiness with more spiritual practice and more doctrine and dogma. Instead, he says, let go, surrender, just be, and rest in the darkness that has come upon your soul, which he, he shows us later isn't actually darkness at all. It's, in fact, unutterable radiance, which blinds us at first because we're not used to perceiving that light directly. You know, mysticism simply means direct encounter with the divine, with the mystery. And we're not used to seeing that light with our bare eyes. <laughs> and so at first it looks, it looks like darkness. But as we, as we kind of relax and soften into the letting go, the collapse that comes with the dark night of the soul, we begin to see with new eyes. And that's when, that's when the magic really begins to unfold. So a dark night of the soul really is not about having a hard time and navigating a difficult divorce or, or the um, end of a business dream of a, of a project or something like that, although all of those circumstances can, in fact, I believe, create the conditions of spiritual nakedness that are necessary for the descent of, of grace, really, that is the dark night. Well, you know, as you were talking, you used the word collapse a couple of times, and you're referring to a personal collapse, but, you know, I can't help but, because of the work I do, uh, think of this also in terms of um, the global crisis and the collapse of societies. And so, with this sense of the deeper meaning of the dark night of the soul, do you think there's such a thing as a collective dark night of the globe? And if so, what does that mean to you? Well, it's people like you, Carolyn, thinkers and leaders like you, who are doing the vital work of making that very connection between our spiritual lives and the, our larger global connection, uh, interconnection with all that is. And it's very easy for people on a spiritual path to to just sort of cultivate their own private spiritual life and forget about their interconnectedness with all beings and with the earth herself. And so I, I really depend upon and bow to people like you who are, and, and Andrew Harvey and others, who are knocking on the door of our conscience and saying, wake up, this isn't just about your personal enlightenment or your personal suffering. This is about our our oneness with, with all that is and therefore our obligation to stand up for, for all beings who don't necessarily have a voice to speak for themselves in these radical times of danger and, and disintegration. So it's, you know, one thing that I have noticed is that my own personal experiences of being plunged into a dark night of the soul, both kind of as a natural ripening of my own spiritual life and also as a result of some profound personal losses have awakened me to my to my true dependence upon all life on the uh, on the web of mutuality as as Martin Luther King so beautifully called it 
And so far from making me feel special and thereby making me feel separate, my losses and my experiences of, of personal um, unraveling <laughs> have connected me to the heart of the human experience and my place in this, in this web of mutuality. And so what I think I am seeing going on is that if a dark night of the soul is about the unraveling of all the conceptual constructs that we had used to kind of prop up our spiritual lives, then we have an opportunity as a collectivity, as a culture, as a family of human beings living with other beings on this planet to rest in our unknowingness and to, rather than rush in with hard-edged solutions that have been analytically derived in the face of the crises that we're, that we're watching unfold all around us, if we can come instead from a place of tenderness and humility and not knowing, then we can begin from this place that John of the Cross is advocating of, of resting in the darkness and tenderly holding the brokenness that is unfolding around us and make that our starting place. So in other words, in the face of the global dark night of the soul, as you so beautifully name it, Carolyn, if we can soften and yield and lead with a willingness to not know and to instead tenderly hold, then I believe that that we can teach each other that that kind of compassion that must be the foundation of any efforts to tend and, and repair the brokenness of this world. Thank you for that. That's really beautiful. And I'm going to ask you more a little later about um, unknowing. But I was thinking as you were talking of our friend Joanna Macy, who has for many years been one of the brightest lights on the horizon in terms of helping us with the issue of despair. Not only are we dealing with climate despair, but the despair of a world that's becoming horrifically violent and the reality of living in a culture in which mass shootings occur daily. Um, Joanna has conducted countless despair and empowerment workshops, and I want to ask you, as we allow the facts of the climate crisis in an increasingly violent world all the way into our consciousness, how do we keep from crumbling with the intensity of the issues and, and collapsing into despair? Oh, Carolyn. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I love Joanna's work, by the way, and um, it's very, very important. You know, the title of my new memoir, as you, as you mentioned in the introduction, is Caravan of No Despair. Right. Memoir of Loss and Transformation. And I drew that title from a Rumi poem. It's actually a, a couplet that's inscribed on his tomb in Konya, Turkey. Rumi, of course, being the 13th century Persian 
poet, the Sufi mystic, um, and, and it says, Come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving. Ours is not a caravan of despair. Even if you have broken your vows a thousand times, come, come again, come. And I'm deeply inspired by that, by those lines of, of poetry and of truth. Because what Rumi is doing is reminding our, us that we will, in fact, fail again and again to uphold the deepest longings of our souls to be of use, to be of service, to live with integrity. That is, to, be, to live lives rooted in love and compassion. And yet, the caravan of this life is one that welcomes all of us. We are all welcome to the table of the human condition, and none of us is free from, from the um, tendency to close our hearts and, and act without love. And further, none of us is exempt from the human condition, which includes and in many ways is characterized by loss after loss. And so... My work with people is about being present, and this is, is so much informed by the, by the teachings of St. John of the Cross and other mystics who invite us to simply be with what is. So rather than trying to push away painful things and fill the emptiness with platitudes, religious or otherwise, how about if we turn toward our pain and soften our hearts and allow it to connect us with with all, with the entire human condition. And so John of the Cross, uh, John of the Cross and, and Rumi and the poet Mirabai, my namesake, who was also a 16th century mystic from India, um, who was in love with Lord Krishna, the god of love, all advocate again and again that we welcome ourselves and each other to the heart of, of what is and and rather than collapse in despair in the face of, of as you say, the, the severe and devastating climate crisis and these, these continuous fires of violence that are erupting everywhere around the globe every single day, that, it's, that we allow our hearts to open, break open, to break open to the pain of what is, and therefore increase our capacity to a boundless extent to hold the suffering of the world. So I find that the sorrow that I have experienced again and again in my life and experience daily in the face of these crises is softening and opening me to hold the pain of the world in my boundless, shattered heart. And therefore, I experience a level of wonderment and actually um, an experience of joyfulness that I couldn't imagine having the capacity for had my heart not been shattered the way that it has been. I mean, I experience a childlike delight in the face of this simplest things on a daily basis, 
connections with other people that fill my heart. And I know that that's not in spite of, but actually as a result of the suffering that I have allowed in, all the way in. Well, you know, um, as you were talking, uh, I was thinking about the fact that that we're going to take a, a music break here in a moment, and and I was just thinking the word break. You know, um, you're talking about heartbreak, and of course, you know, so many wise people have said the only heart worth having is a broken heart. Um, my friend Jack Adam Weber talks about the power of heartbreak. And uh, you were talking about how joy comes in there when we are, or it can come in when we're willing to open our hearts and allow them to break. I was thinking of Mary Oliver's little simple statement. You know, she says, grief and joy, what a time these two have housed as they are in the same body. And, And I find that when I allow my heart to break, actually more joy comes in. Me too. So, (laughs) it's time to take a music break, yes, and this is a song that that I want to share today because as I was preparing for the show, I realized that I had to play it in the middle of my conversation with Mirabai, and recently I heard this song yet again in my travels to the East Coast where, where I did a weekend grief workshop in Rome, Massachusetts, and after this powerful weekend where people so freely and innocently expressed their grief, in this very contained and safe environment, I heard Enya's version of How Can I Keep From Singing. It's an incredibly poignant song, especially in the light of the carnage that happened this past week in San Bernardino. And before I play the song, I want to share the lyrics because they're so appropriate for our conversation in this moment. The title of the song is How Can I Keep From Singing? And she says, My life goes on in endless song above earth's lamentations. I hear the real, though far off hymn that hails a new creation. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear its music ringing. It sounds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? While though the tempest loudly roars, I hear the truth it liveth. And though the darkness round me close, songs in the night it giveth. No storm can shake my inmost calm, while to that rock I am clinging. Since love is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? When tyrants tremble in their fear, and hear their death knell ringing, when friends rejoice both far and near, how can I keep from singing? In prison cell, and dungeon vile, our thoughts to them are winging. When friends by shame are undefiled, how can I keep from singing? Let's listen to Enya. My life goes on. Oh 
That was Inya singing, How Can I Keep From Singing? And this is the Lifeboat Hour. I'm your host, Carolyn Baker, and today I'm talking with a woman I'm proud to call a friend and a sister in the work of emotional and spiritual resilience in the face of humanity's greatest challenge, the dark night of the soul and the dark night of the globe. Mirabai Starr, also somewhat of a neighbor who lives in Taos, New Mexico, not that far from me here in Boulder, Colorado. I want to mention Mirabai's books, which you can find online or in your local bookstore, particularly her new, brand new memoir, Caravan of No Despair, a memoir of loss and transformation. This is a powerful autobiography, the core of which is how she coped with the sudden death of her daughter, which happened on the very same day as the release of her translation of St. John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul. You can learn more about Mirabai's work at MirabaiStar.com, and that's spelled 
M-I-R-A-B-A-I-S-T-A-R-R, MirabaiStar.com. You can contact her there and also learn about her books. But Mirabai, let's take this conversation deeper. I'm personally a huge fan of many of the mystics who were often called completely crazy because they departed from traditional religions and discovered or carved out their own spiritual paths in response to what was going on inside of them or in response to something life handed them that had nothing to do with the hierarchical, patriarchal, soul-stultifying institutions of their times. Uh, I identify with them hugely because as I and other folks like our friends Andrew Harvey and Charles Eisenstein and my friend Mike Rupert who created this show speak the truth about the great unraveling that every aspect of our planet is experiencing, we often get crazy and I'm sure you, you know, get called crazy and I'm sure you do too. And one of the things that often happens is that when we see an unraveling, especially one this huge, we just kind of naturally tend to try to predict what it's going to look like or what the ramifications are going to be because it's really, really hard to stay with not knowing the outcome. So St. John of the Cross speaks of the power of radical unknowing as a spiritual initiation. So first of all, what is a spiritual initiation and how can we apply this teaching to our efforts to raise consciousness about the global catastrophes we're facing and also where does radical unknowing enter the picture wonderful question um i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i start with not knowing this Mm -hmm. you know i'm trained um as a as a philosopher i was a philosophy professor for for 20 years and even though i'm deeply connected to the mystics of really every tradition i'm on an interspiritual path so i'm really drawn to the heart of all the world's great religious traditions and their mystical expressions and their mystical beings poets mostly um i also have you know a fairly finely honed critical mind and i and that be Begins. I was trained to begin everything from a place of not knowing, of being open to the mystery, rather than... I'm very suspicious of um, answers. I'm much more interested in the questions. And that, that applies to metaphysical questions, and it also applies just as much to the issues uh, about what's, what's happening in the environment and, and how we might be able to to teach each other to be good stewards of, of this earth, or, as you so beautifully say, in, in collapsing consciously, possibly hospice workers, uh, in, in the, the great death that is coming, the death and transformation ahead. Um, but but there's so many things that rise up in, uh, in me in response to that question. So John of the Cross in Dark Night of the Soul is advocating that we rest in the mystery and and not try to uh, impose our own ideas and solutions on our broken open reality. Now, of course, he was referring to a personal crisis, and we're really interested here in this conversation, and I think in general in our lives, Carolyn, you and I, and many others, uh, in how these these teachings can apply on a global level. One of the things that I find 
to be vitally important as we approach these crises is to try to cultivate a non-dual perspective. So the teachings of of non-dualism or non-duality come from well, many traditions, I think they all, they all have them at their mystical heart. But in the Advaita Vedanta tradition of Hinduism, non-dualism is the, is the understanding of not two. That doesn't mean that everything is one, although there is that underlying understanding, I suppose. But it's that things are not two. They're, it's not this and versus that. And one of the temptations in the environmental movement and, and in other justice movements, social justice, um, economic justice, environmental justice, is that there is this kind of uh, self-righteousness with which many of us who are activists lead the charge. You know, we lead with the sword, and the sword cuts reality in two, so that there are the good guys and the bad guys, there are the people who are, who are uh, perpetuating the problems that we see in the world, and those and that those attitudes of greed primarily are what are driving the disaster. And so we see that bifurcation. We see the the bad guys, and then we see ourselves, you know, as the champions of a greater consciousness. And we're and we're uh, we are sounding the clarion call, hoping to wake up the sleepwalkers. We'll get off their asses and and be instruments of peace, as St. Francis of Assisi says. So it's really easy to get caught up in that dualistic consciousness that, that makes um, you know, the, the good, good versus evil and broken versus whole kinds of, of distinctions, which I find to be actually unhelpful. So right. a mystical experience is one in which we have a direct experience, often just fleeting glimpses, which all of us have. The mystics are not such special, rarefied creatures that we can't possibly hope to emulate them. We all have moments of mystical experience in which the the boundaries of our separate self blessedly dissolve for moments, fleeting moments, and we experience our fundamental interconnectedness with all that is. If we can come from that place of dissolved boundaries, of, of the recognition of the separate self as being an illusion, then we can, we can approach the problems of the world with beginner's mind, as they say in Zen, with that fresh uh, openness to being with what is rather than imposing our ideas upon it. And with those clear eyes and open hearts, we can, as I said earlier, hold the pain of the world and from that place of compassion truly step up to be of service. But it begins by approaching what is with, with humility and a willingness to be with the mystery rather than, than have it all figured out and impose that on it. There's something about all this that that is rooted in an ability to recognize and affirm beauty. I think that the mystics speak to us all because they're not imposing analytical treatises, discursive, um, ultimate solutions upon us. 
but they're actually knocking on the doors of our heart with their recognition and articulation of the beauty that underlies even the most horrendous suffering. When I am, my daughter died in 2001 at the age of 14, very suddenly in a car accident. I remember having this moment very early on where I recognized that I was utterly shattered, that my being, as I knew it, was, it had died with Jenny, and I was lying in a pile of 10 million broken pieces. And I thought, I could try to put this all back together, or I could not. I could let go and simply be shattered and allow my wholeness to unfold in a timing and in a fashion that is beyond my comprehension. In other words, I could meddle in the process or I could allow, and I chose to allow, and that meant living with my shatteredness for a long, long time. Well, I want us to go back to the dark night of the globe for a moment, um, taking this wisdom that you've so beautifully given us just now. Um, as you know, I've written several books on not only our spiritual and emotional preparation for the global crisis, but also on what might be wanting it might be wanting to teach us. And you've got my book, Collapsing Consciously, and the uh, Love in the Age of Ecological Apocalypse. But I'd like to hear your perspective on the following question. If we do not manage to intercept this crisis, how can we serve each other even as the environment and life as we know it become unrecognizable? It's such a beautiful and important question, and and it actually gives me a great sense of relief to even raise the question. And I actually had that conversation with with our mutual beloved friend Andrew Harvey recently, I don't know, a year or so ago, when I was saying, you know, I I just can't keep talking in my workshops and my books about how many angels dance on the head of a pin. I mean, that's not really what I'm doing in my books at all. I'm I'm speaking about about the the dimensions of social justice and environmental awareness, even as I convey the teachings of the great mystics, um, many of whom have been dead for centuries. But nevertheless, I sometimes suffer from this sense of, of not doing enough in my work with interspirituality and the teachings of the mystics to actually intercept and solve uh, the, the crises that are looming all around us in the environment, in society, and so on. And I want to I help save the, the world. How, you know, that's what my parents, my, my Jewish agnostic artistic parents taught us to do. And so I was sharing this, this kind of pain and remorse with Andrew, and he said, you know, we, we, it may not be possible, actually. It might be, in fact, too late to save humanity and to save the planet. And it may be that what we're being called to do is actually midwife a new world. And that might mean showing up in a loving way as things fall apart completely. 
And it was such a relief to me to actually look at that possibility and just straight in the face and say, okay, Mm -hmm. maybe we won't survive the devastation. Maybe we have, as as a collective human family, let it go, in fact, too far. And so how can I... And, and all the, the people in, that I love and am connected with and the people that I teach and, and counsel, how can we step up, as Andrew calls it, midwives, and you, Carolyn, call it hospice workers um, as things perhaps come completely unraveled, you know, including ourselves. And I think that my practice with the death of my of my daughter, my beloved child, who was the center of my life, that that the experience of sitting in the fire, of actually holding my own broken self in my arms with tenderness and compassion, and and not with an effort to fix and repair and rebuild, but with with an openness to simply hold, um, I think is preparing me for the, the possibility, the very real possibility that I'm going to be called upon to hold others, to hold my entire community as the world as we know it comes undone. I mean, I hope that there is still a chance that, that we can radically change our collective way, our addiction to overconsumption primarily, which is what's causing so much suffering. And and yet uh, create a new and healthy, vibrant world without having to experience the, the total collapse of all that we know. But I'm not sure that we will. It's uh, you know, the, the violence that's been proliferating everywhere in, in recent years and months especially, and days even, with the, the killings in Southern California and, and Colorado Springs and, and the, the horrific violence being perpetrated by, by ISIS and so on, I can't help but see these these explosions of of pain and violence as being the result of unclaimed, unnamed grief. Yes. So that just as individuals, we have to claim our grief in order that it doesn't explode into violence and anger. I think as a society, we need to recognize our collective grief, name it, and thereby intervene against the the impulse toward violence, which I I do strongly believe is is rooted in unclaimed. Well, your your response to what I just asked you a moment ago is is the perfect segue into the last question I have for you. We've got about six or seven minutes left in the show. Um, 
I, of course, just finished reading Caravan of No Despair, and I actually finished it on a long flight from the East Coast back to Boulder, and I was sitting on the plane sobbing as I did so, because really the last part of your book is about the death of your daughter, Jenny, and one aspect of your work that's very close to my own is your emphasis on grief, and I deeply appreciate your recognition of the power of conscious grief work in our lives, Um, and and you... um, You know, of course, from the heart-wrenching loss of Jenny, and I'm sure from other losses in your life, uh, some of which you share in Caravan of No Despair and others beyond the book, um, you know this up close and personal. So, you know, I'm also doing grief workshops and working with folks one-on-one as a grief counselor, but currently you're teaching an online course on grief for the Shift Network, and I'd like you to tell us a little bit about the grief work that you do and why you do it, and and tell us about the online course. Well, thank you for asking, Carolyn. Well, the the course that I'm doing for the Shift Network is actually almost over, although we, we will be doing other versions of it in the near future, but it's called Caravan of No Despair, just, just like the title of my book, and the emphasis is really on showing up completely for our experience of loss. And, you know, it seems like every spiritual tradition on the planet, from the 12-step program whereby people become sober and reclaim their lives in face of of addictions, to to the teachings of, of Sufism and mystical Christianity and and Jewish mysticism, all seem to emphasize the power of being present. The, the first step is to sort of face what what is. And the last step, or it's not really the last step because our spiritual lives go on and on and on. Our lives as, as human beings are a constantly unfolding project. But, but that all of these spiritual traditions affirm the first step is to actually look at Buddhism as a perfect example, look at reality as it is, and the final step is how do we stand up to be of service once we have navigated the landscape of our own spiritual unfolding. So Teresa of Avila, for instance, St. Teresa of Avila, whose work I have translated in the interior castle, and she speaks about seven kind of stations or spiritual initiations along the way of, of our path home to union with, with the Beloved, as she calls God. And in the seventh stage, there is the complete transformation. There is the utter union of the individual soul into the boundless ocean of the divine. And when we come back from that experience of, of mystical union, we're filled with this sense of our of our interconnectedness with all that is, and therefore an impulse to be of service. It's like the bodhisattva vow in Buddhism, when the the individual soul comes to the brink of awakening, of enlightenment, that is of merging back into the one, and says, you know what, I think I'm going to stay right here and serve be of service to all beings until we're all free. In Judaism, they say, especially during the Passover liturgy, no one is free until we are all free. And I think every spiritual path um, understands and affirms and, and teaches that essential truth 
that we must rise up in response to the suffering of the world with our, our, our burning offering of how can I help. Not because we're some perfected creatures that have gotten it all right and now can dispense our wisdom to others, but actually the opposite. Recognizing our own brokenness enables us to be part of the human family, part of creation itself, and to be the prophets that we are, reluctant prophets that we mostly are, um, from that place of being in the middle of it all, not, not above it. Idea if that answered your question or not. That's what's rising up. Yeah, beautiful response, Mirabai. And I want to let everyone know that you can contact Mirabai Starr and learn about her work and all of her books at MirabaiStarr.com. That's M I R A B A I S T A R R.com. Mirabai, thank you so much for being on the Lifeboat Hour. This has been an absolute delight and pleasure. I so appreciate you. Thank you for offering us all this lifeboat, Carolyn. And all of you listening, please join us again next week when my millennial friend, the incredible Tyler Hess, is going to be with us again, uh, telling us about what it's like for someone his age to be navigating a world in chaos in the age of astronomical student debt and grim prospects for career success in a withering economy. You'll appreciate Tyler's wisdom and his brilliant articulation of it. He's an amazing role model for his generation, and whatever your age demographic, you're going to enjoy listening to Tyler. We'll see you all again next week. Thank you for listening to the Lifeboat Hour. Bye-bye. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. Stay poor, the rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows, everybody knows that the boat is leaking. Everybody knows the captain lied. Everybody got this broken feeling. Everybody talking to their pockets Everybody wants a box of chocolates And a long stem rose Everybody knows